July 4th. Wonderful day. Wonderful day to worship, especially because one of the things we celebrate is the freedom to worship, the freedom to assemble, the freedom to speak God's word openly and without censorship. So I have a question. Do you think Christians will face persecution in America? But we know that Christians face open persecution of many varieties in many countries of the world. All kinds of restrictions, laws, and sometimes open and violent hostility to the gospel. Now, of course, there's many kinds of persecution too. There's persecution due to, let's say, ethnicity. There's persecution due to political beliefs. There's even persecution due to, let's say, economic status or caste. But there is one kind of persecution which fuels the hope of Christians. I'd like to talk about that from this text today. Here's the Thessalonians. We've been looking at this letter to the Thessalonians for the last several weeks. And they faced tremendous persecution, tribulation, affliction. All those words are used to describe what they face. But this persecution filled them with a hope which was kind of like a double-edged sword. And I'd like to talk about those two things. It, on the one hand, confirmed their hope in God's salvation. It confirmed their hope in God's salvation. On the other hand, it comforted them in the hope of God's judgment. And then after talking about those two, just I'll give a couple points of application. First of all, persecution. As it came upon them, it confirmed that their hope in God's promises was genuine, well-founded. Look at our text, because it raises a question. How did Paul know that God's work in these Thessalonians was real? He says in verse 13, which we looked at last week, we thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it into your heart, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. It performs its work in you who believe. How did he know that? The startling statement is in verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, that is, their countrymen. That's the evidence. Not that they had it easy, not that people were flocking to the church, not that they were prospering in their businesses. It wasn't health and wealth. It wasn't even that their families were happy and satisfied. It was that they are suffering like all the other churches of Christ. That they were suffering persecution just like everyone else did from their countrymen. This was the mark which authenticated that the word of God was believed by them and received by them. It was making a profound effect on their lives. So let, let's just think for a moment about persecution because, of course, as I said, people are persecuted for all kinds of reason. And Paul here is talking about a particular kind of persecution. And, and I'll mention and I'll describe that in just a moment. People all over the world are persecuted for politics, for ethnicity. You know, there's, there's ethnic cleansings that have gone on in the past and even now are going on. It's horrible. People are persecuted for 
their political stance, even in countries where there might be some kind of freedom. And sometimes people think they're being persecuted when, you know, they're just disliked because they're, well, unlikable, right? I mean, we know people that are just rude and obnoxious, and they think, yeah, people are persecuting me because I'm a Christian. And in your head, you're thinking, no, it's because you're obnoxious. So persecution can be in our mind for all kinds of reasons. Neither is this kind of persecution due to, you might say, foolish, absurd claims that really bring shame to Christ, even when those claims are made in the name of Christ. Remember seeing this banner in India. There's a huge banner in the middle of the city. It said, come, see, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised to life. And they had this huge ground and thousands of people were there. And you know what else was there? Video cameras. They were videoing all the huge crowds because that would be the way they would raise funds back in the home country in the West. And so as they were preaching, you know, with this big banner advertising it, This is what people in that city told me. Some of the enemies of the gospel came with an actual dead body and they laid it at the feet. They say, okay, go ahead. We're here. And when nothing happened, they grabbed them and the authorities threw them out of the city. And those people said they were being persecuted for the gospel. I don't think so. That's not the kind of persecution we have in mind here. So here's the reason for the persecution. If you look at verse 16, the beginning says, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. That was the kind of persecution that Paul was talking about. Hindering the proclamation of the gospel, which affects and transforms men and women so that they are saved, so that they come under the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Bringing men and women to faith. Persecution, in other words, for proclaiming Jesus, for proclaiming the good news that the true God, the the creator of heaven and earth, the one that the Thessalonians had met and were startled to know was a God of grace and kindness who, who did everything that was necessary to offer us peace. And all of it was done in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we sang earlier. That was the message that they were to proclaim. And the persecution was that they were not allowed to do that. And this was true, it says, in all the churches. You see, that's what verse 14 said. What you are enduring is what all the churches everywhere are enduring from their own countrymen. The Thessalonians from the Thessalonians, the Jews from the Judeans. So there will always be opposition to the gospel. That's the nature of things. So, It's not just this passive kind of persecution that keeps us from doing what we want. You know, the persecution that Paul is talking about is not just Christians weren't free to live as they please, to worship as they please, to worship where they wanted to please. The complaint was not, just leave us alone. That's all we ask. No, the complaint is much more, we can't speak to you. We can't preach. We can't tell others about Jesus. That's the persecution. That's what's keeping them from doing what God wanted them to do. So the the question is, why does that cause persecution? I mean, after all, you know, you can just walk away. If someone's in the street preaching, you can not come to church. You can turn off the radio or the TV. Why does this cause persecution? It's because ultimately there's a great divide in humanity. There's two people 
And the Bible sees this all through from the beginning to the end. There's two basic natures of people. In verse 15, it describes these. It says, the countrymen of the Jews, it says, they killed the Lord and drove us out. It says, they are not pleasing to God and hostile to all men. They are not pleasing to God, but the interesting thing is, neither do they want to be pleasing to God. In other words, this complaint would not bother them the least bit. Their desire is not to please God. That's not what they live for. In fact, that's how we all once were. We all lived, the Bible says, for ourselves, following our own desires. Another way to put that is we said, I want to please myself. That's all I care about. But then the gospel came to us. That pleasing of ourselves started way back in Genesis. And really, when you think of it, it runs through the heart of every child, every baby, every man, every woman. It's part of our nature until the gospel comes. So what happens then? We get perfect, always want to do everything God wants us to do. We have to be careful. We still stumble, don't we? I do. There might be some who say, I'm, I'm glad you're, you stumble, but I don't. But I do. We sin. We go against the very word of God when it tells us what to do. We, we hurt people who are made in God's image. We go against God himself who loves us and is gracious to us. So what's the difference? It's this that at our core, we have this miraculous change that has taken place in our hearts. Our desire has changed. From wanting to please ourselves, we find in ourselves a desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ. We really want to just please him. We feel happier. We feel at peace. We feel comforted. We have security when we please God. This is found all through scripture, but as long as we're open in 1 Thessalonians, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you should excel still more. It's a characterization of the Christian walk. What is your life all about? Well, if you want it in just a phrase, it's, I, I want to please God in heaven. So this leads to friction. We want to please God. Yes, we fail, we stumble, but... We really want to do it. We're in a world that does not want to please God. And so there's a kind of persecution that results from this. And that's a confirmation that our hope in the salvation of God is real. When that kind of friction takes place. And so look at what happened with the Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Tribulation, affliction, trouble, persecution, but they received the word nevertheless with joy. It's the same word that's used in verse 13 for receiving the word. You know, it means not just that they heard it with their ears, but they welcomed it, they embraced it, they took it into their heart. They delighted in it. And they did it in tribulation. So if you go back to The history that's recorded in Acts chapter 17, you'll see what kind of tribulation they had. Social isolation, political trouble, legal challenges when they met to worship Christ, physical violence, 
Some think even martyrdom. So they faced all kinds of persecution there. But they knew this was the word of life. Chapter 1, verse 9, it's such a crucial verse. When they came and the gospel came to them, they came to believe this is the true and living God. Wow, the creator of heaven and earth, not the God of some locality or some tradition or some church or some religious group, but the God who rules over all, the creator. And they found that he was not someone that they had to run away from, but someone that they wanted to run to. Because from him, all grace and mercy and love came. So how wonderful it must have been that when the, when the gospel came to them, they realized that all these passages of God's grace and love and kindness were for them. For example, just think about hearing this, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Imagine how great the news must have been for them and how they would have forgotten about the affliction and trouble they were facing if they realized that the great God of heaven and earth, the eternal God, longed to show them grace. That's the gospel. And so there was joy even in tribulation. Every time I, I read this, I can't think of that encounter I had with a group of uh, maybe four or five young women. They didn't know anything about the Lord, but they started listening to a low-power FM radio station. A guy had, was running it out of his house in the neighborhood. And uh, he was sharing about the Good Shepherd. He was telling about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as these young women, who were very close friends with each other, listened day by day to this broadcast, they came to faith in Jesus. Oh, and they were so excited. They would do anything to know more about Christ. So they went out, they got Bibles, brought them home, they showed their parents, and the parents grabbed the Bibles, ripped them up, and threw them away. Don't ever bring that in here again. I remember when we were talking to them, we would recite a Bible verse, and their eyes would close, and they would, you could see their lips moving, because they were memorizing it. It was so precious to them. Tribulation, trouble in their home, and yet joy that they knew the living God. Joy in his word, joy in that truth. That's what we found in the Thessalonians also. If God, the true God is for me, how can anyone be against me? So they received the word with joy, chapter 1, verse 6. In Acts chapter 5, by the way, there's this other amazing example. Peter and the other apostles were proclaiming the word, and they had a lot of hindrances. In fact, they were arrested. Don't do that, they said. And when they kept doing it, they were arrested. They were thrown in jail. God miraculously released them. And what did they do? They didn't go home and say, that was a close one. No, they went out and they preached again. So they were out there preaching the gospel. And they were arrested again and brought before the leaders. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 5, 40 and 41. And when they, the authorities, had called the apostles, they beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. Listen to this. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Some ways it was confirming to them that they really belonged to this Lord Jesus Christ. There's a certain kind of persecution that confirms that our hope in God's salvation is well-founded. 
We really have received the word. We really do belong to him. So in this passage, I think Paul is really expounding on the teachings that Jesus himself gave in the Gospels. For example, in John's Gospel, chapter 15, here's what it says. This is verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you see, Jesus is saying the same thing. That kind of persecution is confirmation that God is really at work in us, that God has chosen us to be his own. And that results in this friction with the world around us. And it confirms that our hope in God's promise of saving us is well-founded. So that's the first thing. Persecution serves a purpose in our lives as Christians. Here's the second thing. Persecution comforts us in the hope of God's judgment. Now, I know that sounds weird. Who would ever hope for judgment? Let me just explain. Because in and of itself, the very sound of judgment is something dreadful. But here's what it says in verse 16 when it describes what's happening. Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. I I don't know how you react to the word wrath. I don't like it. I mean, I don't like human wrath. It's unsettling. But imagine here it's talking about God's wrath. And elsewhere in the scripture, it's talking about God's wrath. What a dreadful thing to even imagine. How can there be any hope or comfort in that? But on the other hand, think about it. If we're honest, what do we wish for when we know that a great evil has been done? Don't you wish for justice? Isn't that why laws are passed to fix things? Isn't that why people sue and take cases to court? Because they want justice. They want evil fixed. They want good to prevail. If someone you love was beaten, raped, tortured, imprisoned, what would you want? Especially if the perpetrator of that crime sat there with a smirk on his face, no remorse, no repentance. Wouldn't you want justice done? Of course. So what do we want? Well, we want a wise judge. Of course we want a judge wise enough to take into account if there's a change, if there's remorse, repentance, if there's room for mercy, yes. But we want a judge who's also good enough and wise enough to know that there is a right and a wrong, who knows that there is justice and injustice, evil and good, and a judge who does what is just. We all long for that. And God is just. So you notice the phrase here, he waits for them to fill up the measure of their sins. In one way or the other, that expression is used in many places in Scripture. To fill up the measure of their sins. In the Old Testament, you find cultures, these countries, They do unspeakably vile acts, and they're allowed to continue. How long, Lord? How long will they continue? And the scripture says, until they've filled up the full measure of their sins. God's waiting. Uh, Jesus used this expression in a very similar context. It's in Matthew chapter 23, but this expression is in verse 32. And I think Paul is expounding Jesus' teachings, and I I think that's why he refers to, alludes to that teaching. Really, it means that God is waiting patiently until the full measure is filled up. 
Peter talks about it without using that expression in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. People say, why? Why isn't God acting? Why isn't God doing justice, taking care of evil and wickedness? And Peter says, no, God is not slow. He's not asleep, but he's patient because God longs for people to repent. He doesn't want anyone to come under this dreadful judgment. And so I don't know how big this cup is which holds the sins of an individual or how big this cup is which holds the sins of a nation. So I would be foolish to try to predict when it fills up and when it begins to spill over and when God can no longer wait. There comes a time when God says, enough, no more. And judgment comes upon a people, upon individuals, upon nations. And when that happens, all of God's people and all the watching angels are glad that evil and wickedness is being dealt with. So God's people are comforted in the hope that justice will be done, that evil will be dealt with. We hate evil. We want God to deal with it. And so when you read the Psalms, you'll see that over and over the psalmist prays for this. In fact, sometimes it's a little uncomfortable to read it, isn't it? It startles us occasionally because there's such a break from the rest of the psalm. For example, Psalm 139 is this beautiful psalm about God being with us all the time, no matter where we go, even from the womb he is with us. He guides us every day and he's with us every step of the way. And then towards the end, verse 19 and 21 of Psalm 139, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And part of us says, well, who do you think you are? What are you, perfect? Don't you ever stumble? Don't you ever misspeak? Don't you ever... Take even maybe the name of the Lord in vain. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, as you read the Psalms, you'll see that there's heartfelt Psalms of tearful confession before God. He recognizes his sinfulness. The Psalmists, in plural, do recognize that we are a sinful people. But here's the fundamental difference. It's what I pointed to before. The Psalmist trusts God and wants to please him. That's his desire. One thing have I desired, that will I seek after all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. That's the fundamental difference. They trust God's goodness and love, and they seek him, and they want to please him. And the others, those that the psalmist is praising against, are those who oppose God. They don't want to please him. They only want to please themselves. That's the the great divide in humanity. And what the psalmist only saw in shadows, we know very clearly that we are saved from judgment. The reason it is a day of hope for us, of comfort for us, is because we are saved from judgment, not because of the stellar quality of our lives, but because God has poured his grace out on us in Christ Jesus. He's made that infinite difference between where we are and where we need to be. And we trust his goodness. We trust his love. We trust that promise of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So our kind and gracious God waits in patience. That's what it's saying. But there is a day of reckoning. And that's good. Evil will not finally triumph or be let go. By the way, friends, that's why we don't take vengeance. Old and New Testament point to that. If you're taking vengeance, I urge you to take comfort in your hope of the day of judgment. God will settle things. That's why we don't even do those quiet digs against someone when we want to get back at them. That's why we don't slander and gossip to demean or bring someone down when they've hurt us because we trust in God as the proper and right judge. So we find comfort in the hope of judgment. So persecution, trouble can be positive for the Christian. It assures us that we really do belong to to the Lord when that persecution is due to the gospel. And it draws us to hope in the day of judgment when God will settle all things. And then let me just close with what this means for us on the 4th of July. What does this mean for us in our country? Well, first, I, I want to say very clearly, in case anybody has misunderstood that we should never pretend to judge when someone is beyond the grace of God. We should never think an individual, for an individual, the cup is full. Oh man, that's it. Fill to the brimful. Now God's judgment is going to come. We should never think that of a nation, any nation, and certainly not America, because only God knows when the full measure is filled. So our true hope is always what it's mentioned in verse 16, is proclaiming the gospel that people may be saved, that they may come to know God's grace in Christ. And and, and the examples in the Bible are remarkable, isn't it? Did you know that Christians hated Paul? They gave up on him? His name was Saul at the time because he was a persecutor of the church. He was one of these people that we're talking about right now. He hated the church and persecuted them. He followed around Christians, arrested them. The church had given up on him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him, but then God grabbed a hold of him. If people had given up on Paul, well, God did not give up on him. And he became a great champion of the gospel, happy to give his life and all he had for the proclamation of the gospel. Think of James. There was James and John, the two brothers, but I'm talking about James who was the actual brother of Jesus. He's mentioned at least twice in the Gospels. One time, he is in a way mocking Jesus. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 7. During the day of a festival, he says, hey Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem? That's the big stage. Go ahead. Why are you here in some podunk town? Later on, uh, we read in Mark's Gospel that He, along with his family, thought that Jesus was a madman. He had lost his mind, it says. But what happened? Who would have had any hope for James? But something happened when he came to see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So when James begins his epistle, his letter, he calls Jesus himself a bondservant of Jesus. And he calls his brother Lord. We can't ever give up on anybody, ever. And friends, that means we can't give up on our country. I know you might be very distressed when you read the news. You may think of it as a linear decline, down, 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 down. There's no way out. You may be distressed when you look at other countries where things are even worse. But God is powerful, and his gospel is powerful. It changes lives, changes families, changes nations. 
That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is we need to pray for our country. In particular, we need to pray that there would be no hindrances to the proclamation of the gospel. You see that that's what the issue was, right? That was at the heart of the persecution that we were talking about here. This is not an easy thing, of course. But we read in 1 Timothy 2 that we should pray for all those in authority. We should pray that we could lead a quiet and peaceful life. Why? So that we can be comfortable, so that we can meet whenever we want, wherever we want, eat in any restaurant we want. Yeah, fine. I think those are all good. But it goes on to say, verses 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 2, this is good that we pray for these people It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Our our prayers should be focused on the proclamation of the gospel. That's our hope as Christians. That's our hope for our nation as Christians. So pray that there's no hindrance to the gospel. It's not an easy thing. You know, there's always opposition. England, two centuries ago, was a Christian nation, right? And yet, You weren't allowed to preach the gospel unless the government licensed you to do it. People were thrown in jail if they preached God's word. Because there's only one church. If you don't belong to the state church, you're forbidden from sharing God's word with others. So, as you know, people came, in part anyway, some of them came, the pilgrims came, because they wanted freedom to worship. So they came to this land. But you know what? That didn't last long either. Very soon, some of those original colonies started establishing their own churches and and restricting people from preaching. Quakers and Baptists and others were thrown out and sometimes faced punishment. It's a tenuous thing. I think we should be grateful for God's grace that this freedom has been enshrined in the Bill of Rights. And you read about the debates that took place about, you know, why is the Bill of Rights not originally in the Constitution and why is this... First Amendment, and why this is the first item in the First Amendment that nothing in the government, no power of the government should hinder us from worshiping. No power in the government should hinder us from proclaiming the gospel, we would say. It's a tremendous freedom. And we should thank God for it. So pray for our country and pray that there would be no hindrance to the gospel. May God bless America to do that. The the hymn, America the Beautiful, is really a prayer for this country, isn't it? If If you read it carefully, it's not a reflection on what has happened, but a plea of what will happen in God blessing this country. It closes with this line, America, America, may God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness and every gain divine. Amen.